Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast, just a quick note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki at Pexels who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Hello and welcome to This Week in Financial Crime. I'm your host, Chris Kirkbride. Actually, once again, it's been quite a varied week this week with lots of interesting stories and one very interesting fraud announcement, which is apparently coming next week. If, well, if what's doing the rounds in the newswires is anything to go by, it should be quite a, quite a bombshell. Anyway, what we'll be taking a look at. Well, there are some bits on sanctions, some useful Q&As, and a decent range of money laundering stories, including some... News of a quiet time for HSBC, uh, with an announcement by the U.S. Federal Reserve on fraud, some stuff coming out of the U.S. on avoiding social media scams and updates to its whistleblower rules. In the U.K., there's a call for evidence on unauthorized access to accounts and misuse of personal data. Finally, I take a brief look at the announcement by the dual financial regulators in the UK on the investigation into HBOS PLC management following the global financial crisis. Yep, almost 15 years ago to the day that it started, we're still wittering on about it. Let's get moving. Let's start, as ever, with financial crime sanctions. Now, I toyed with not starting with this this week, but there was probably just enough to warrant giving it top billing. Maybe this will change next week, but for now... It's still here. I should add, if you love a good bit of sanctions Q&A content, then it's quite a time to be alive this week. Start with the UK, then the rest of the world. UK sanctions. In the UK, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation has been blogging on reporting to Offsy what do I need to do. The blog covers such relevant content as who should report, who are relevant firms, what do I report, what are frozen accounts, what type of offences, do I report? And how do I report? It also supplies some useful worked examples. The changes reflect wider amendments made to regulations earlier this year. As a bit of signposting, Offsy has also updated its UK financial sanctions updated general guidance for financial sanctions under the Sanctions and Anti-Money Laundering Act 2018, which is available to view as a PDF document at the link in the podcast description. To dovetail with the blog post, you should particularly check out Chapter 5. In more Q&A content, the Law Society has published a series of Q&As from its Practice Advice Service on Sanctions and Russia. Very useful and, frankly, detailed answers are provided to practitioners with embedded links to relevant materials. The link to that is also available in the podcast description. Now, beyond the UK, the Estonian Foreign Minister, Ermas Reinsolu, has waded into the discussion concerning the next package of EU sanctions. He stated that the Baltic states are pushing for an eighth package of sanctions against Russia as soon as possible, certainly from a political and practical point of view. He indicated that specific proposals have already been submitted to the Commission concerning energy, trade, further restrictions on the SWIFT system, as well as adding to the list of sanctioned individuals and organisations. He asserted that the current package of sanctions, while internationally recognised as far-ranging, were inadequate, notwithstanding the impact they're already having on the bloc, that is, the member states of the European Union. Echoing this narrative, France and Germany have provided a united front on sanctions, urging further economic sanctions in the coming months, sustaining and broadening the current regime. 
However, they have indicated an aggressive hostility to a stance which has been taken by some member states on tourist visas. The Baltic states, Czechia and others, have called for a full Russian tourist ban, but without unanimity that ban isn't going to be possible. And, well, since France and Germany don't want it, it's unlikely that it's going to happen. The news coming from France and Germany is that they want to distinguish between the Putin regime and its people, whom they see to a degree as victims of that regime. Over to the US, where the Department of Justice has obtained a warrant for seizure against an aeroplane owned by the Russian energy company PJSC Lukoil. The aeroplane, a Boeing 737, last flew into the US in March 2019. The basis for the warrant is probable cause of a violation of federal law where the aeroplane is said to have flown into and out of Russia in violation of Department of Commerce sanctions imposed on Russia. The press release and official court documents are available at the link in the podcast description. And finally this week on sanctions, the sanctioned Russian, uh, the sanctioned Russian bank Sberbank is to sell its Swiss subsidiary, Sberbank Switzerland AG, the Swiss financial regulator has announced this week. The bank will be bought by Group M3. Now, away from sanctions, we turn to money laundering. Then a number of interesting money laundering stories this week, and we'll start with news of a clampdown in Turkey on the use of TikTok for money laundering purposes. Some accounts have been noted to have suspicious activity associated with them, especially concerned with donations to accounts. Now, TikTok viewers can donate to content creators, and all of that is generally fine and above board, but the Financial Crimes Investigation Board in Turkey has noted that some accounts operate somewhat suspiciously. It identified one re- account that received a suspiciously high level of donations, despite having very few followers, and that another received high donations for a blank screen or a still image on a live stream event. Now, over recent weeks in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, we've highlighted the aggressive actions of the United Kingdom Gambling Commission in relation to alleged money laundering carried out by organisations subject to its oversight. Many of these, I mean, that is to say, they've not been carrying out money laundering, but they have, it is suggested by their systems and controls, possibly allowed money laundering to happen. Many of those have been online providers of gambling services, which is one platform option for money launderers to clean up their funds. Well, this week, the US has started to get twitchy on this issue, with a series of stories highlighting the allied risk of the growth in online gambling and financial crime. The problem is that while banks and other traditional financial service providers might have more rigorous regimes and therefore be less attractive to launderers, The online gambling sector in the US does not have quite the same level of compliance, systems and controls to identify tainted funds. More action is needed from the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, a bureau of the US Department of the Treasury and the Internal Revenue Service, which has some anti-money laundering powers in relation to gambling venues. Over to the EU now. The European Banking Authority has published its second report on the functioning of the AML-CFT supervisory colleges in the European Union. AML-CFT colleges are permanent structures that bring together different supervisory authorities 
responsible for the supervision of a cross-border financial institution which operates in at least three member states as well as outside the European Union. While the report found that there is a general good level of practice at work in the colleges, work needs to be done in some areas, particularly work was needed in relation to information exchange and of the need for colleges to be organised in a more risk-sensitive manner, certainly with more frequent meetings for cross-border institutions exposed to higher levels of risk of money laundering and terrorist financing. To the Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, which has updated its consolidated assessment ratings. This is the table which provides information on the effectiveness of the 205 jurisdictions which uh, have been in the implementation of the FATF's anti-money laundering measures and how they work in practice. And finally, on money laundering this week, the United States Federal Reserve has ended its enforcement action against HSBC. You'll recall that HSBC agreed to pay $1.92 billion in fines under a deferred prosecution agreement for violation of anti-money laundering rules and sanctions regimes, especially in relation to banking activities in Mexico, but also for conducting transactions for customers sanctioned by the US, notably Iran. It would seem that, by this announcement, the Fed is satisfied that HSBC's systems and controls are such that the process can now come to an end. We now turn attention to a series of stories that I've kind of rolled up together into cyber and fraud. First, we start with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission Office of Investor Education and Advocacy, which has issued a warning to investors on social media and investment fraud. The warning provides useful guidance on a range of topics commonly tempting victims to part with their cash. The advice opens with sound encouragement, which I suppose actually could apply to any form of investment anywhere in the world. And that advice is to be sceptical and never make investment decisions based solely on information from social media platforms or apps. Well, more fool you if you do. If something looks too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true, at least as my grandfather would have said, and he was no investment advisor. In further guidance, which will come as no surprise to many, Social media may convey false impressions or consensus or legitimacy, making it look like large numbers of people are buying an investment when they are not doing so. As well as the focus on social media scammers, the alert also looks at impersonation scammers, crypto scams, which have become increasingly popular in recent months, romance scams, which seek to pull on the heartstrings of the lonely and market manipulation schemes. Again, the links to that are in the podcast description. Sticking with the Securities and Exchange Commission, though this isn't necessarily a fraud story, although I suppose it could be, uh, it has updated its whistleblower rules to create incentives for people to get their whistles out and provided two specific amendments. The press release, which accompanies the story, provides the first rule change allows the Commission to pay whistleblowers for their information and assistance in connection with non-SEC actions in additional circumstances. The second rule affirms the Commission's authority to consider the dollar amount of a potential award for the limited purpose of increasing an award but not lowering an award. 
I have reported since the Financial Crime Weekly podcast was relaunched that the UK has been fighting the fraudsters who have been using the COVID-19 pandemic and the recovery arrangements to help businesses bounce back. Generally, I've steered clear of other jurisdictions because of the sheer volume of content. These COVID scams have been happening the world over. Australia, the US, just any name a country that provided support packages and there will be some scam or fraud associated with it. So I've generally stayed clear of them for that reason. There'd be too much content to cover. However, since it's been a quiet week in the UK, I thought I'd turn my attention to a story out of the US where the Department of Justice has announced charges against almost 40 individuals for fraudulently obtaining paycheck protection plan funding and economic injury disaster loans through Small Business Administration. Now, the scale of the problem in the UK is bad enough, and I've got an important story coming up on that later in this podcast. But I wonder if some estimation has been undertaken of the scale of the frauds globally when all the pandemic-related funding fraud is added up. Might have to do some searching on that. I bet it's an eye-watering figure. Now, a bit on cyber. The Home Office in the United Kingdom has opened a call for information unauthorised access to online accounts and personal data. The call for information notes that computer misuse remains a significant threat to UK citizens and the government is looking to make large volume reductions in the level of unauthorised access to online accounts and personal data, which so often facilitates other offences and leads to harm. Therefore, the call for information seeks material specifically on first the risks associated with unauthorised access to UK citizens' online accounts and personal data. Secondly, actions that are currently taken to address the problem. And thirdly, actions that should be taken to address the problem and where responsibilities for taking that action should lie. The call opened on the 1st of September 2022 and closes on the 27th of October 2022. Information on submitting evidence can be found in the link in the podcast description. Sticking with the UK, the Serious Fraud Office has announced the retrial of David Kennedy, who stands accused of fraudulent trading. In the initial trial, after 30 hours of deliberations, the jury was unable to reach a verdict and so was discharged by the judge. The case relates to an alleged Cayman Islands registered legal financing fund which collapsed in October 2012. For his part, Kennedy is alleged to have carried on the Synergy Solution Limited uh, company for a fraudulent purpose in order dishonestly to enrich himself to the detriment of investors in the legal financing fund. The judge has fixed the date for the retrial for the 18th of March 2024. The trial is expected to last six weeks and Kennedy denies the charge. Now, this is a bit of a big story, this. A final piece of fraud news this week relates once more to the COVID-19 bounce-back loan schemes in the UK. A number of newswires started to cover this late Friday evening, early Saturday morning. Now, I hesitate almost to go into it because it's unconfirmed, but Reuters is covering it, so if they're covering it, I'm happy to trail it and hope for more information to be published over the next week. The news is that the UK government is set to release information indicating that around £1.1 billion of small business loans provided under the bounce-back loan scheme have been classified as being suspected 
fraud, but that that figure is preliminary and could rise, could increase. Over previous weeks of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, we've noted that the parliamentary scrutiny in this area has been quite significant, particularly at committee level. And I've reported on various actions by the Insolvency Service in relation to corporations that defrauded the scheme out of varying sums of money up to the maximum of £50,000 in many cases. What this does, this story, if it does indeed come from the Department for Business, Energy and Industry this week, is give a preliminary indication of the scale of the fraud in the scheme. There have been many estimations, and I think think I've covered many of the estimations over previous editions of the Financial Crime Weekly. I do have one concern, though, and that is that the news, which frankly is quite embarrassing for the government, this is a a government which has sought to try to paint itself as a, a government which controls expenditure and so on, and The expenditure during COVID was out of control to a degree and subject to enormous levels of fraud. It's quite embarrassing, therefore. Now, my concern is that it will be released on Monday, the 5th of September. Why am I concerned about that? Well, that's a good day to bury bad news because it's the day that the Tory party leadership election is announced. And because of the way the United Kingdom's constitutional framework operates, the person who wins that, because they have the largest majority in Parliament will become the next Prime Minister. So on Monday, if that's when the news does come out, it may be a question of picking our way through the thicket of nonsense which is generated next week. But I've got my garden shears ready to go through it. And finally, this week, something of a blast from the past. I was, in fact, in two minds about whether to cover this because this is a financial crime podcast, and this isn't technically financial crime, but it's a worthy story in its own right, and certainly worth mentioning. It goes back to the global financial crisis, which I don't need to tell you anything about, but particularly in the UK, it relates to the global financial crisis and the impact on one of our major high street banks, HBOS, Halifax Bank of Scotland, PLC. In 2009, the Financial Services Authority, which was the regulator of the financial services industry until, or at the material time, until about 2012, when it lost responsibility for that. It was a unitary regulator of the financial services industry, and it opened in 2009 enforcement investigations, which resulted in enforcement action against Bank of Scotland PLC and the chief executive officer of HBOS, their corporate division. While investigations were also conducted into the strategic and operational management and performance failings at the bank, the publication of the report by Andrew Green QC recommended that the now dual regulators, that is, the Prudential Regulation Authority, the PRA, and the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, which is the current dual regulator model which operates in the United Kingdom, were urged to consider whether or not to undertake investigations into any former HBOS senior managers. Now, the dual regulators listened and they opened investigations. These investigations have now concluded and the conclusion is that no further action is to be taken. 
Now, if you read the media this week, both social and mainstream, there's been a significant level of dismay at this decision, with some striking commentary on the crassness of the decision that has been made. At the time of the financial crisis, as it affected the UK, a deep degree of misery was caused to all those mortgaged to HBOS and others, in fact, as the contagion drew other banks into the crisis. Of course, there was the wider criticism that while profits were privatised, losses were socialised. These losses, uh, it's at least arguable, had an even wider societal impact from the subsequent recession and the austerity, uh, austerity measures which were implemented following the change of UK government in 2010. Something, one might say, we continue to pay for today. Now, I think I'll just leave it there. There's plenty of comments out there on this decision which the dual regulator has made in relation to HBOS and its senior management. Go and have a look at that if you want to. I don't want to really go any further into it for fear of treading into an area where I don't really want this podcast to be found. That's it for this week in the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast, wherever that is. I don't know. You'll hear from me again next Sunday with all the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everybody.